And Gary, in his brilliance, said, can I ask you a question? If you were caring for a five-year-old named Alex, would you speak to him the way you speak to yourself? Would you feed him the way you feed yourself? Would you treat him the way you treat yourself? And the profound and resounding answer for me was absolutely never. This is your host, Doc Schrock, and this is Life Alive. Let's dip into the how and why healing stories can transform lives, including your own, at a time in history when it matters most. It's time to reawaken your hope, fill your life with purpose, and wisely use that passion inside of us to heal, grow, and find our flow into a life that has meaning. We also speak truth, seek freedom, and focus on health here at Life Alive. So let's start here by saying our statement of inclusion. We are one, and it doesn't matter how we started in life. It matters how we restart today. Let's heal, grow, and flow. In my conversation today with Alex, he states that people are vehicles for stories. His intention was to share his struggles with self-worth and self-acceptance. And he says he's always found that learning a different model of how life can be gives someone hope. To extend to them a story that goes through their pain to a place of being integrated and whole. In this story, discover how Alex found a new authenticity and power through healing from a past trauma that landed him in a critical care unit in a hospital. Alex was in a critical moment in his life when he not only healed his own life from an eating disorder, but he saved a life along the way. Let's listen into what Alex has to say today. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, welcome to the Life Live podcast. I'm honored. Just to get a little background on the story that we're going to share today, I don't never heard this story, and so I just want to gather a little bit of background. Of do you have any intentions around sharing this story that you've had this journey you've been on with music with healing? Mm. Why you kind of signed up for this to share it? My personal journey took me through. I struggle with mental health a lot around self-worth, a lot around self-acceptance. The story will go more into depth in the landscape of how that evolved and why. My work now is in mental health very often. I work with teens who are overcoming self-harm, suicidal ideation, social anxiety, depression. There's, there's a lot of issues that stir up. And one of the most powerful tools for someone who's got a brain that's stuck in a rut is to learn a different model of how life can be. And one of the most powerful models that you can extend into a system that's stuck is a story that heals through the same thing. Hmm. Where if you give somebody a story that goes all the way through from where they may be stuck themselves, to being in a place of being integrated, being whole, being well. That then puts a blueprint as a possibility where you can choose to engage with new ideas that you may not have otherwise known were even possibilities. And it feels very powerful and very meaningful to, to be authentic and share a story very candidly, very authentically about things that, you know, are not 
<laughs> healing stories don't start out really lovely. Mm-hmm. They they take you up from from rock bottom very often. So sure. Thanks for giving me a segue into the intro and thank you for the intention. My intention is to, on this podcast, is to help people not only heal themselves, but also hear a healing story, mm-hmm. much like you said, that becomes a possibility that was not there before. Yeah. I know that I need that for myself. I know that oftentimes for me, I need to do these type of things because I need to know that I'm not alone. Yeah. And so I think there's a time and a place where we can be alone, but I don't feel like it's ever okay to be alone and lonely. Mm. And I think there's two different things there. So we can dive a little bit deeper into that through this story. But just a little bit of uh, background about you, Alex. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Colorado, in Front Range. And was there any type of spiritual underpinnings or any type of structure that you grew up with around spirituality at all? That's actually been a really beautiful, really meaningful part of my life growing up. My family has always had a mission statement, and one of (laughs) the parts of my family's mission statement is that we value friends, family, and our connection to God. And my brother and I both were very, very, in my mind, very lucky to have that as an anchor But also, our parents handled it in a really beautiful way where they shared their beliefs, which are even different from each other's, and then let us explore what we wanted. Well, not what we wanted, what we felt was most true in how that connection to God looked, where they shared their own deepest inner experiences. They shared their spirituality. They gave us exposure to being in church environments and being out of church environments, being around people with really diverse, beautiful philosophies, and having the chance to collect for ourselves a really intimate and powerful relationship with how the divine presented itself. I have early memories of beautiful, beautiful prayers, many of which that my mom would give and do for me while I was like falling asleep, where it would include so many different facets, even with just her beliefs, where she would bring in Christ and pray to Christ and then bring in teachers such as Paramahansa Yogananda hmm. and bring in just general calls to, to saints, to angels, to beings of the light that guide and protect us. What is your earliest yeah. memory of that? Hmm. It's a beautiful question. The youngest memory I have of that kind of experience, I've got others of different kinds that are from earlier in my life, but my earliest memory of one of those prayers is being in my bedroom and really feeling incredibly, incredibly wrapped in acceptance and safety. And my mom being next to me beside the bed, sharing that prayer. And there was this thing she'd do where she'd like run her fingers through my hair. Oh my gosh, completely melted me, mm. completely dissolved. So there was an aspect attention. of touch there. Yeah. With oh. The prayer. Oh my gosh, yes. So my godmother had been a, <laughs> a Catholic nun, and she then decided for herself that she was being fed more, more rules than faith. She was being put more into a human box than into a relationship with God. And so she left her life as a nun and completely personally revolutionized her life and explored with all sorts of different things. Just took a lot of courage and then Mm -hmm. settled back into this really sweet personal relationship that includes the really deep devotion to Christ at the same time as other things that she found along her way. But she was a hypnotherapist Hmm. for a period of time. And what's a hypnotherapist? So she would work with getting people's subconscious minds. The the only ever cases I interacted with her, it was just into a deep relaxation state. Okay. And she had that ability to like put her hands on your scalp and just I'd be gone. Hmm. Completely, completely. What do you mean by gone? 
physical tension would just melt. I'd often fall right asleep. Hmm. I could be fussed. I could be throwing some sort of a tantrum. And that would take me back, that anchor me into just this really warm, soft state of being. Loved that. And so it was a similar how, kind about how old were you and with these earliest memories of I don't have many conscious memories that I can trace to being earlier than three or four years old. Okay. These are probably most vivid at four, five, six, and and a couple of years after that for sure. Okay. Where those formative experiences sort of built a blueprint of I'm completely accepted right now. I'm completely safe right now, and I'm very, 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 very loved. Hmm. Because of these formative experiences and because of these themes of inclusivity, of love, of being exposed to a range of different Mm -hmm. types of people, different types of religions, what was something that was consistent throughout all those different experiences for you from your childhood into maybe your teens? I think that one of the really consistent, consistent places that I found at that stage in my life, belief systems, they anchored into love, they anchored into forgiveness, they anchored a lot into compassion and acceptance. And it drew for me a very powerful common line that I think sort of lines up with what I was talking about with my Auntie Claudette. You know, she she went from trying to find God through somebody else's system into saying, I'm going to have a direct relationship with the divine. Hmm. And I'm going to follow that more loyally than I'm ready to follow what somebody says I should do. And each person that I met, whether they were really, really devoutly Buddhist or even you find it with people who pursue truth through atheism. Their deepest core beliefs, in the cases that I was drawn towards, were guided by finding the most powerful, most coherent relationship they could with the truth. They have a unique upbringing, a unique lens, a unique perspective that no other human being has ever had. And it makes sense that their relationship from that spot to the divine would be equally unique. And it gave me the ability to be very humble and find a lot of value and reverence for whatever people thought and however they thought and be able to see a common line of people seeking the deepest truth and very, very, very consistently being the best human being that they could be. That's pretty profound that this choice to experience life seeking truth and seeking a deep, coherent relationship was what I heard you say through Mm -hmm. through truth, no matter what that person currently believed, whether they said, I don't believe there is a higher power or a God or supreme being in my life. However, you were observing that something within them was still seeking a meaning and a deeper truth oh, that was gosh, yeah. that would help them make sense of life. The only reason I could imagine someone ever choosing to be an atheist is because they were seeking something that was more true than something they perceived as BS. Sure. Something they may have just been presented or taught that didn't work for them. Especially if people are presented a belief system in a way that's controlling that's manipulative, that's derogatory. If somebody's presented a belief system that incorporates heavy amounts of shame, it is almost an act of personal spiritual liberation and connection to God to revoke that. It's it's often heart-wrenching. But there's something about the human being's capacity to detect two-facedness. Where if somebody's saying love, 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 acceptance, 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 but also underhandedly criticizing you for all of these different things that you might do quote-unquote wrong, human beings have a natural capacity to catch that and feel unsafe with it. Sure. I call that the bullshit meter. (laughs) It's just an inborn knowing usually in our gut Mm -hmm. or in our heart that knows 
at least something's a little off between words and what we're hearing and what we're seeing. Yep. And I see even in my work as people come in in pain, there's sometimes a disconnect with what the pain actually is and what the person's perception of that pain may be. I can only imagine. So it seems like there may be some of this and also spiritual journeys as well, Mm -hmm. or people just growing up is that there may be some things that they're seeing that are different than what they're hearing. And then they go Mm -hmm. on their own exploration. So with that background and bringing it back more into the present, because we know that every journey and every uh, truth has some challenge and some support. So Mm -hmm. it sounds like you really had a great start to life. It sounded like you guys had a uh, I love this family mission statement. Mm-hmm. Um, this just incredible that you've got this theme of take care of your friends, your family, and have mm-hmm. that personal relationship with God. I think that's so beautiful. And yeah, that's, those that's those one listening, line of multiple. Yeah, those listening, maybe that's a new family tradition. Is that your family makes a personal mission statement this year? I think that's beautiful. It's never too late to have another childhood, you know? Yeah. And so when did you start having mental health issues? What, what, what happened? You know, or is there anything that formed those problems or issues that, that started those challenges? For one Tell me about thing, it. I've always been a very different thinker. Okay. Very much what sometimes gets called twice exceptional, where I've got some exceptional strengths and some exceptional challenges. And that got very magnified at 10 because I had a head injury. Fell on the back of my head in gym class, being reckless, trying to jump and kick a ball, landing on the hard floor. And then other kids in the class saying, oh, you almost got it. Do it again. I'm dazed. I'm stunned. I run, jump, kick, land, same spot on the back of my head. Twice? Having, twice. Within like minutes. So inflammation cycle just, <laughs> I can only imagine. Sure. Skyrocketed. I started having... Um, having migraines around that, started having minor seizures. Okay. Did you have any of those before you fell? No, gosh, no. It so really you're attributing there's a direct result from probably post, the concussion yeah, that you suffered, syndrome obviously. Yeah, seemed to be most in line with what okay. I was seeing. Did you see anyone at that time for help or did you were you checked out? School nurse just give you peppermint water? What happened? After? The school there did not have a protocol in place okay. that was really adequate for what I needed. They didn't have a way to handle migraines. They could only really send me home with a fever or broken bone. Mm -hmm. Did you get checked out by a doctor outside of school at all? You know, only after a friend's grandmother at a soccer game spotted how I was doing and said, hey, my son had a concussion. He was showing this same pattern. Okay. Do you remember what? Huge amounts of fatigue. The migraines themselves were a huge part. And one big thing was I... I still knew how to write, but I couldn't get words onto paper. It took me three to four years before I was able to effectively and comfortably write even a subsection of a page. And that completely threw schooling on its head. Ended up going into a private school setting. It met my needs a lot more. It was really, really helpful in my mind, especially with the perspective it gave me for the work I do now with neurodiverse teens, the opportunity to be around people who thought differently. And in that particular private school, it was kids on the autism spectrum, beautiful, beautiful learning differences of all different kinds, completely unmanageable in a regular classroom setting. But if you play to the strengths of those kinds of brains, they're better at doing what they do than any quote-unquote neurotypical person could accomplish. I remember after that head injury, like not really being able to write, I drew out what was a schematic attempting to create a perpetual motion magnetic levitation train. Really, really fascinating to look back on those. I had no comprehension of how friction worked at that point in my life. So definitely not a viable actual model, but it showed that my brain was really functioning, very highly functioning in some ways while it was unable to function in others. That sort of set 
a landscape of my brain being already different. And at a certain point, I, I was homeschooled because the private school I went to closed down. While I was homeschooled, my, my parents were my resources, and my mom had a minor stroke. And my dad had been working in IBM for over 20 years. He was being put in a position to start having to lay off his friends and colleagues. Mm. He was intensely demoralized and went into a pretty deep depression at about the same time. So I want to focus in on you fell on your head, the fatigue, you had started having migraines. Was mm-hmm. that uh, also like sensitivity to light? Oh, uh, what, yeah. what were those migraines like? Because this really hits home with me because when I was about 12, I smacked my head uh, in a roller skating accident. Okay. And it yeah. wasn't until 12 years later that I got under chiropractic care mm-hmm. that I started to put together little dots of, well, that's when I started having migraines. And this is when I started having trouble with asthma. So I just want to try to link the dots for people that may be trying to put their own journey with this is that with migraines and with the writing difficulties, um, what was your emotional state? Would you say that you're emotionally immature? Were you able to continue to have good friendships? What was your social life like Ah, between 10 and 15? The first migraine I remember I was at school in the library. I was a sucker for any book that had reality in it, and I completely spurned any sort of fiction at that point in my life. Okay. So I'm overlooking at some of the essentially like nature books, science encyclopedia kind of things, and I look at the spine of a book And the words are gone in a certain part of my vision, but the picture behind the words is still filled in. So somehow the part of my brain that's actually perceiving the lettering or a particular area of my vision was not functioning. Hmm. And the part of my brain that could substitute in imagery was still fine. So I'm able to look at this, the spine of this book and see, sort of scan up and down what the picture on the spine is behind the words. And I, I look around at this and that's really fascinating, but also completely foreign to any experience I'd ever had before. Okay. It then progressed to really, really intense pain in sort of the temple area. Yep of my head. Light sensitivity, definitely a big thing. Once I was already in a migraine state, it was a trigger to intensify it. So being in a dark space, I eventually learned was really, really important. Not something I had any way of identifying right away that day. And I got absurdly nauseous. Did it affect your schooling at that point? All of a sudden, I'm not able to write. And I'm sitting at my desk. I remember one day my classmates had to protest to get me sent home because I was sitting at my desk nauseous and in pain and just head in my hands. I couldn't look up. I couldn't couldn't function. And I've just got this probably a math time test on my desk and just could not comprehend coming close to functioning enough to be able to do it just in excruciating pain, my friends in class see it and they threw enough of a fuss to get my teacher to call my mom and get me, get me sent home. Must have had some good friends. That's pretty amazing that that's perception of this person is suffering. And, you know, it's not hard to see when, when someone is, if we're just paying attention. Yep. And I think that's, Um, An interesting thing to bring up is that a lot of times we get going in life and it reminds me if we have these duties each day and we fall into these routines and we're Mm. just not paying attention to what's what's important, which is the people around us. And I think our world has lost, gotten more touch with each other through screens and Mm. lost physical touch and eye touch, you know, with the soul with compassion, with feeling around being in another person's space. Yeah, I've, you know, I've w- totally respectively. dropped social media. Yeah. Was that going on when you were 
I, I came in just before that wave. Okay. So gotcha. I remember people talking a lot about MySpace and whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I was not one of the- We are the, born of the same era. <laughs> I was not one of the hip kids with a Blackberry or whatever. Sure. What was your social support like since, you know, earlier you had said that you were kind of going into this time of your mother having this stroke and your father really going into deep depression. So your two main support structures there yeah. took a hit. So tell me a little bit about your social support and where you got your strength. Yeah. Those two chunks of time are distanced by about four or five years. So the head injury at 10 and then my mom's stroke when I was 15. And that coinciding with my dad losing the opportunity to do his job in a way that felt coherent with his values. During the time when I was 10, I had good friends and relationships at school, really enjoyed getting outside, playing two-hand touch football. I loved being the sort of tactical quarterback. I was always the one throwing screens while all the other. And uh, I lost that pretty profoundly when I had to be pulled out of that school. I remember my best friend's family pretty much went no contact with me because they felt that my parents were coddling me for pulling me out and not making me just go through the motions. And they, they, I, there was communication stuff above and beyond that, but I lost one of the most central friendships of my life at that time, and I grieved that intensely. I had a very restorative experience of friendships once I was in the the private school, but I also realized looking back that a lot of them were half friendship, half bullying, and that incorporates into what you expect from people later on in life until you design a blueprint of friendship for yourself as a young adult or as an adult that... um, is more of a conscious choice than the one you're raised with or end up with by default. We are so, our brains are so malleable at this time in our Mm -hmm. lives that we really are setting up in these teen years, the environment we're in, the people we're around, the circumstances really start to form what we should expect from the world. And so due to your injury and the, somewhat the lack of compassion or the just the mm-hmm. lack of awareness to see what you were truly going through. There's sort of this underlying like everyone thinks, just pull yourself up by the bootstrap, keep going through the motions. That's what everybody's doing. Mm-hmm. And so with that, is this where you start to have like more mental strain, the grief of losing a friendship and then also homeschooling? I, yeah. I became suicidal at 10. And that was... So, suicidal ideation thoughts. Yeah, I remember... Were you private about that for a long I, time or did you, were I you express? I asked my mom for help finding a bridge to jump off of. Okay. And that was her, her kick in the pants to say, whoa, I'm getting him out of this school that's not meeting his needs. I am going to step back from the job I'm working right now and reprioritize to save my kid. And the way she did it, that honestly is part of what has saved me in a way that I'm able to pay forward an experience of healing is that she chose to prioritize loving me over fixing me. She absolutely made it actionably clear that she was there to prioritize my safety, my well-being, and me knowing I was loved. Mm-hmm. That, beautiful. that gives me that to then carry forward. Honestly, throughout all the challenges I've been through in life, I've become a product of the love that saved me. I've become a vehicle for the messages that have helped me claim myself back after really, really challenging emotional, internal, mental landscapes. Sure. So with this landscape, the geography really started to change with one, the injury but also Entirely. with just the the circumstances of how your life changed. So tell me a little bit about when you started having after that experience and going into like the 15 how yeah. your yeah. parents were really their own, you know, cuz everybody no one's immune to challenges in life and, and mm-hmm. different things. 
when those foundations started to be shook, where were you at when you were when 14, 15 going into? Yeah. Shoot. When the foundations started to shake, my survival mechanism was to try to control. And in my case, it was to control myself. Finding some illusion of being able to rule over my own life when ultimately that was just a, a cry from the part of me that felt like the structure and the safety and the support and the security was dissolving. So my control mechanisms at that time, while there were many of them, the ones that really weren't healthy were modeled off of what I had been told right eating was and what I had been told right exercise was because I had grown up around a lot of societal messages that basically say no fat, lots of veggies, lots of exercise, push harder, do whatever you can to excel. As an attempt at self-love, and I think all self-sabotaging behaviors are ultimately an attempt at self-love. Sure. It's a distorted yeah. means of behavior because we don't have the tools yeah. or the coping mechanism necessary to work that out in a healthier manner. Like exercise and uh, eating alone are healthy oh, things. You they need are both of necessary, those. And that's part of However, what they got distorted in this situation. A challenge with exercise and with eating, particularly important to do the core work on because you're not going to just be able to be sober from food. Mm -hmm. You actually have to go through such a level of core work that you're able to find why that, in my case, that effort to control my life was present and the, the beliefs that it distorts through to get there. For me, there were some very key, completely unconscious beliefs, just implicit ways about how my brain structured reality that put me after others something that's very, very celebrated in Western culture and in a lot of religions. I had been exposed very much to essentially a glorification of martyrdom. And I was able at that time to really start loving gardening, something my dad had shown me the, the year before. Fell in love with these plants I grew, saw so much beauty in them. And I could not stand the thought of consuming that to support myself. At that point, the major gap in logic was around my own worth. I remember I had a major turnaround point during that part of my life where a therapist who was working with me in particular as well as my family, mm -hmm. I was pushing really hard and exercising as much as I possibly could basically trying to cover up the fact that I felt my life was falling apart and I was barely eating. I lost a lot of weight really fast. And that alone involves a lot of weird cognitions and beliefs. But once you're malnourished, brain chemistry, completely different ballgame than it is when you're nourished. Sure. Okay. So this is that was partly what led to as a stepping stone of what led to oh my gosh, yeah. where you're working Dominoes. with this therapist. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, so go this, on go on to that. That whole landscape put me into a situation where I was needing to receive very intensive eating disorder specific treatment. Thank goodness, I feel so blessed, so thankful that I had the support that I had. From professionals? Oh my gosh. Okay. From professionals, from my family even though they weren't as accessible in the same ways as before, they showed up to love me. And that, again, is something that I'm able to carry forward as a strength, is the love that I was shown during that time. Yeah, they were I, doing what they, they, what they could with what they had. But yeah. Because everyone's going through, it seems like at this time, their own challenges as well. But the therapist I mentioned, really good dialectical behavioral therapist, Gary Seals, he called me out in a beautiful way, very, very gracefully, where he was having a conversation about 
there's a skill in dialectical behavioral therapy called opposite to emotion action. We were talking about that and um, the subject completely went on a tangent from one of the other clients there. I was on an eating disorder unit at the time to the subject of feeding other people. And one very common pattern with eating disorders is loving to cook for others. It was a shared thing between myself and this other client where I loved, 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 loved to care for others. I could absolutely make a huge pile of pancakes and feed it to a five-year-old with so much love and so much grace. And Gary, in his brilliance, said, can I ask you a question? If you were caring for a five-year-old named Alex, would you speak to him the way you speak to yourself? Would you feed him the way you feed yourself? Would you treat him the way you treat yourself? And the profound and resounding answer for me was absolutely never. I cried for days on that. And it represented something that I think is, is similar along the lines to why stories are powerful. You get to build a model in your brain for something that is intact and then extend it to something that isn't. Where I had an intact model of what it was like to feed somebody lovingly when it came to caring for others. And Gary so gracefully helped me extend that intact pattern of cognition for how to feed somebody with love into the situation and the application of how to feed yourself with love. And it, it became so clear to me that what I was struggling with was not the places where my logic felt incoherent, but it was in the very assumptions that my logic made. There was just an unspoken assumption that somehow placed me as last on the pecking order of value, something that I think gets subtly beaten into a lot of young people growing up in a lot of different ways through a lot of different vectors. A lot of different causes lead people to, to feel like in some way they have to earn love or they have to perform in order to be worthy of survival or they have to be quote-unquote, good in order to have somebody stick around as a partner, or they have to be any number of things in order to have somebody stick around as a partner, or as a parent, or as a sibling, or as a friend. And even just the tiniest little messages can build up into a really disgusting pattern of self-loathing. And that was one very powerful moment of me being able to escape that. And I think the foundation for me being able to be receptive to that had been built over time, but was really, really intensely the fact that I felt safe in that space. I felt accepted. I didn't feel like people were trying to change and fix me. I didn't feel like it was an attack or an assault on my survival mechanisms because I was trying to do the best I could. Everything about most mental disorders is a person doing the best they can. Or in a lot of cases, there's biochemistry at play that is just spinning out of control. In a lot of cases, there are structures in the brain that are just incoherent innately. But a lot, a lot of situations that are sort of developed tend to have that sort of common line back to, this is the best I know how to do right now. Given this hand of cards, this is the best way I know to play it. And if somebody had attacked me or criticized me or shamed me for what I was doing to, in my mind, save myself, to control my life, to find a sense of security, I would have been completely unreceptive to Gary yeah. at all. But I've found both as a teacher and as a mental health worker and as a human being that people become so, so much more capable of meeting their own healing process when safety and acceptance are in place. Not always just acceptance, but even approval, that there's someone there who is going to not just be indifferent if you start to cry, but be present for you 
and affirm the fact that your emotions are completely permissible, completely real, it ends up becoming this catalyst for all of the excavation that our systems naturally do when you're safe and when you're loved, when you're accepted, to take you back to yourself, Hmm. to process out the unfinished grieving, the unfinished anger, the unfinished fear, to get to feel it all, let it all out, and then get back to you. It's like you get back to this this baseline perfection of what a human being is when they're innately well. And when a person's needs are met, they naturally seek to learn. They're naturally effective workers. They're naturally going to choose a life that's going to be of so much service to others, even if only by setting an example of what it's like to be doing a mundane task with a personal equilibrium that's intact. Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. There's so much to unpack there. But I want to, first of all, thank you for just being very articulate Thank you. about, you can really tell when someone's done a lot of work because <laughs> they really, truly not have just gone through the motions of, you know, oh, I talked to a person for a while, but mm-hmm. really unpacking oh, and yeah. can step outside of yourself almost as an observer at that point, which is a very hard thing to do sometimes when mm-hmm. we're in wrapped in our emotions and you oh, yeah, you the, tell the tell yeah. the story of the power of this story is that and this is why I do this podcast is it enables people to fill the gap of where they've missed themselves mm-hmm. and it sounds like Gary helped you find yourself by doing for others what you weren't doing for yourself and i think that mm-hmm. is just so beautiful is that we create these assumptions around who we are and what we're supposed to be. And it's interesting that we have to try to figure out how to escape ourselves. But in that we're finding ourselves by doing for others. And it sounds like he really helped you see. And I think that there's a neurological basis to say, you talked about safety and acceptance. There's a, there's a neuroscience theory called polyvagal theory. And mm-hmm. one thing that they feel in this theory that hasn't been missed is that there's fight and flight part of our nerve system that tells us when it's not safe to run or to fight. And then there is this other side of our nervous system that controls and regulates digestion and us chilling and relaxing uh, when we're in a a space of safety and healing. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this time where we go through an experience in life and we freeze. Yep. And the classic example that they give sometimes is that someone that has been raped or someone that has had a really traumatic experience and they end up either getting blamed and agreeing with it or they behave in a way that isn't congruent with what they really themselves want to express about that. And it's because our brain literally just shuts down and we can't handle that at that moment. And so we're unable to integrate some of these experiences. And this is why we're sharing these stories is because stories like yours, Alex, and stories, even me connecting my own story with yours, Mm. fills in gaps for people. And it creates a safe space, a a listening space. This is a safe listening space where people can come and hear stories like this and connect and fill in their own gaps. And I think one of the most powerful things that you realized was that for doing by others and seeing others, you saw yourself and it was in a safe space and that made all the difference. And it it connected you with your mom, even way back feeling safe in those prayers and in Mm -hmm. that, that healing touch. The time that you were in the hospital, you had all these experiences and you keep mentioning through this that they've always translated forward into you gifting it to others in sort of like Mm -hmm. a pay it forward fashion in your own way. So tell me about that experience and what happened in the, the hospital when you started playing harp. Yes. So the harp has become one of the most powerful healing, literally instruments, healing instrument, healing tool for myself and for offering to others. And I think one very beautiful model for being of service to others was given to me by an incredible teaching mentor named Chris Spann, who taught me that there's there's three ways to lead and to teach. 
there's by example, by example, and by example. That um, if if you pour your cup out for others, you're not filling their cup. I mean, maybe you are in the moment, but what you're teaching them is how to pour out their own cup. And if you fill your own cup by example, it teaches other people to do the same. It shows this model of someone who cares about them, who respects them, who's full, who's well, creates that model by example. The model of caring for others translating into a model of caring for yourself, I think, leads into all of these discussions of how to create a positive metaphor for a needed change in your own cognition. And music has been a really, really powerful way for me to build new models in that way. I started playing the harp at 13, 13, 14. So this was a couple years before I was in the hospital, and I, I enjoyed it a lot. Very, very meaningful for me to play, learning little songs and building repertoire. But then How does that make my, you feel? Oh, gosh. Is this a sooth- more of a soothing measure, or is it something for, to allow you to take your focus off of the issues that you were having, just put some, put your energy into something positive and beautiful sounding. What was that like for you? You know, at first it was fun. It was mentally challenging. Mm-hmm. It was physically challenging to do the articulation with the hands. Once the healing crisis hit for me, it completely transformed in its role in my life. The greatest act of kindness I could imagine my heart teacher giving me she let me have a little tiny miniature harp while I was in the hospital. And when I first went into the children's hospital, I was at the verge of heart failure, liver failure, and kidney failure. I, I was bed bound. Due to the malnourishment. And Due the, to the malnourishment. Yeah, exactly. High, high risk, especially of heart attack with major eating disorder related malnourishment. And having the harp became so much of a self-soothing tool. It was incredible to have that. And I was in there in in that room on the bed playing the harp. Okay. And it started to help the doctors. Hmm. And it started to help the nurses. And what were some of the things that they were saying? They'd come in after a hard day and say, Can I can I just sit in the room for a while while you're playing? Hmm. I I need to think. I need to relax. And that was really profound for me to see because it, it, again, gave me this experience of a possible model for being of service. Hmm. And that was hit home drastically. At one point, I was pushed in a wheelchair to this basically a sensory integration room where I was going to have lunch. Dolphins on the walls, quiet space, door is open to the hallway. I've got my harp with me trying to get electrolytes in mm-hmm. and really hard, really, really hard to eat when you're that malnourished. My, sure. my hands would turn purple and dry and start shaking uncontrollably. My body did not have the capacity to chemically process food. Wow. And so just taking as much in as I was safely able to get in and self-soothing while I was needing to. Unbeknownst to me, across the hall, also with a cracked door, there is a one and a half year old who was experiencing liver failure and a rotavirus. Is that a life threatening? He wasn't virus? expected to make it. Wasn't expected to make it. He okay. was hooked up to all sorts of. T- I was on the floor for kids that weren't expected to make it. Okay. So you were. At, I, I that was, was how dire of the situation. Oh was yeah. Oh yeah. I wow. I was not. A promising case. Okay. And he was not a promising case. And he was non-responsive, hooked up to all sorts of tubes, and had been non-responsive for a while. And he started to move when I was playing the harp across the hall. His grandma spotted that he was moving, picked him up, put him in her lap, and we did from across this hospital hallway from one one door to the other open door did a little concert for what was maybe a half hour. And doctors and nurses are in the hallways just sobbing and running, grabbing my mom so she can come see the process as it's happening. Mm. And this young man started to track with his eyes. He started to move his hands, started to clap, started to do sign language for bird. And I was playing 
just little kid songs that grandma was sometimes singing along to and sometimes rocking him to, holding him there physically. And he was so keyed in by the end of it. He and I both ended up making it. We actually stayed in touch with that family afterwards. Beautiful, beautiful story, beautiful chance to continue connecting. Mm-hmm. Is this when Especially you really started to feel like you, you started to translate your gift, like express what you had experienced in your life? They wheeled me back to my room and I told my mom, like, I think I have a tool. I think I have a way I can help people. And I, I think that that is worth fighting for. That at that point, I was really at this multiple week long choice point of whether I decided to actually work very, very hard to live or take the relatively easy route and let go. And it was. What was that mindset? You were aware of this even though you were only 15. I was very aware of that. Yeah. Very aware. You were at death, you could been at death's door right then and there. Yeah. And you had a choice. Yeah. They didn't share with me the numbers around my my heart and my liver and my kidneys until afterwards. But you knew how you felt. (laughs) It's a very strange dissociative place you go with starvation. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of bliss. There was a lot of the feeling of sort of immaculate control that I had over my life. Sure. Where I was unstoppably able to deprive myself of food mm-hmm. <laughs> as long as I could want to. And there is something about being in that much control at that time that felt like a comfort relative to the world crumbling. Sure. And ultimately what I needed to feel was the world crumbling. Mm-hmm. I needed to feel that and be loved. I needed to go into all the stuff that I was avoiding and let it actually be felt and cared for and accepted and safe and have the needs that it was expressing be met because everything about it was really, really smart mm-hmm. except for the way I did it. Yeah. But where that, do you think that sense of control came from? Was it one event or was it an accumulation? Of accumulation. Just, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And it was, that was the one thing it was like you said before it was, exercise and the eating at that point after the injury was were things that you knew that you could have control of. It and plays the same role as a drug yeah. that would give you a good feeling but not be good for you. Sure. It's a dissociative escape. Sure. So in this, you said, I have a way and that's worth fighting for. So, so obviously yes. you're sitting here and uh, what was this young man's name? Do you remember his name? Um, I want to keep just, it private okay. just to honor the fact sure. that like, he has he's, he's alive oh, and well. He is alive Great. and well. So basically you saved a life while you, while you were in, maybe even two. And also it seems yeah. like the us he and them mine. curtain fell because even doctors and nurses were coming and receiving from you. Yeah. So it sounds like there was even like a vortex of, of energy where you were attracting people to express this this gift that you have. And once um, I was out of the hospital, I sought out therapeutic harp as a study. Hmm. And I got a scholarship from the International Harp Therapy Program to travel that summer to Holland and study with the, the harp therapy conference there. That was absolutely transformative. I was the only <laughs> I was the only American and the only person under like 30. So for those of you, those of the people, and I actually, this is for myself as well, that don't know what heart therapy is, can you give a layperson overview of what that yeah. is? In the US, there are different distinctions for certifications you can have as a helping musician. You can do what's called music therapy, and you can do what's called therapeutic music. You can also just do music in a way that's innately healing, that's unregulated, but in terms of regulated, helping professions with music, music therapy is like you're doing clinical therapy with music as a tool. Okay. Therapeutic music, which is what I got the chance to be exposed to, though I didn't get certified as at 16, I was too young to, to actually get the formal certification. That's therapeutic music. It's using the innate qualities 
of sound and vibration and music in a way that's either palliative or comforting, restorative. It's not about curing. It's not about diagnosing things. It's not about, you know, fundamentally changing the physical outcome mm-hmm. of a person's situation, but helping them to, the, the word healing versus curing was spoken about, where you're not there to fix it, but you're there to be present. You're there to help the person be emotionally present. You're there to provide an emotionally acknowledging, really meaningful space where a person, even if they may still be even actively passing, they can do so in a more comfortable way. They can do so in a way that has someone nearby expressing love through music, Mm -hmm. expressing safety through music, expressing acceptance through music. It's really cool to hook somebody up to a heart rate monitor and improvise because you get this feedback from the body of the listener that tells you things that you don't as a musician ordinarily get to hear back as feedback. It is an incredible training tool Mm -hmm. for being able to develop a relationship, not just with playing to listeners' conscious minds, but playing to listeners' physiological systems. Sure. So incredible. And that has continued to be, I'd say, a tool and a passion where I bring my harp into healing settings. I bring my harp with me in mental health work. I bring my harp along in situations where I'm able to be of service with it. Largely because I have a story to share with it, it becomes that much more powerful. There's something that's a little hollow about an MP3 or a CD relative to knowing somebody's life story and personal healing process is deeply intermixed with their live playing. Mm -hmm. And it's humbling to offer. Humbling, humbling to play. Is that because of some of the things that you see happen on the other end? Or is it it also self- satisfaction of it's still is it still soothing to you as just just to play just the act i think one thing about caring professions in general is if you're burning yourself out with it you're not helping (laughs) (laughs) you're just showing people how to yeah how to burn out sure the harp has sound holes on the back it's facing into the body of the player when it's resonating Mm. and the music i produce when i'm improvising is inevitably invariably and no matter how much I would try to control it, it's linked to my state of mind and my state of being. Mm. If I am frazzled, the music is frazzled. And so I really have a huge accountability tool in that way to keep myself honest. Because as I'm playing, it has to be coherent with myself. Or it's gonna be it's it's gonna be two-faced. Mm-hmm. It's gonna come across with like this person that has a fake smile playing music that sounds somehow disjointed. And that's just really weird and creepy and not cool. Mm -hmm. Whereas it's very restorative to have somebody who's like, you know, I can make mistakes. It's okay. But I'm going to offer this with the greatest amount of love that I possibly can. And even if I'm just playing one note, I'm playing it with an intention to be completely present for whoever is listening, including myself. Sure. You, awesome. you have to have that, that full cup. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, first of all, for translating what's what really transformed as a foundation in a mission statement of loving family and friends mm-hmm. and having that life experience of that personal relationship with God to yeah. whatever that is for you. I want to thank you for sharing really your foundation of, you know, how you started in life. Yeah. And then also the, like I said, there's no good story without challenge and support of you being so challenged by life mm. of what seems to be at the time, a totally random thing. 10 year old kid falls, hits his head. Right. And who knows what, where that's going to take you. And it took you to some, some dark and deep places mm-hmm. And it's even, I can say this from personal experiences with the migraines is it's so interesting how the only place that is soothing is the darkest, hmm. quietest place we Isn't can find. Interesting? 
that we are soothed. And for those people that are listening out there, we are here for you to share our stories, to Mm -hmm. fill the gaps, to listen to you. We know what it's like to have to go into that dark and quiet place. I myself did it for 12 years and suffered Mm -hmm. for 12 years and had my own story until I found uh, a practitioner that was a changing point in my life and a, a transformational experience with chiropractic. However, huge. in this story of yours, Alex, it's that your, your heart was healed in and through finding for yourself how you could help others and also still help yourself. And I think that's always the delicate balancing act of life. That's the mm-hmm. elephant on its toe, balancing on its toenail, yeah. right? Of how do we get out of ourselves enough to be able to serve and to be able to express our, our heart and who we are as yeah. people, who we truly are, because that's the most beautiful thing we can express. And also, how can we help others and be of service to others? And how do we find that that act? And I really feel like you've done such a good job of really just having, playing out your story, living your life, really just being who you are, mm-hmm. but also doing a lot of hard work. And I just want to thank you for that and honor you for that. Thank you so I much. really feel like your heart is translated through your heart plane, which we're about to, if you would mm-hmm. so oblige us in a moment, your heart is really felt through your harp. And for those of you listening, whatever your story is, whatever gaps need to be filled in, I just want to encourage you to find that story that you connect with, find that other possibility that that Alex talked about, that it may become a new model for you that touches your heart. And, you know, I asked you, what is your harp? He said it earlier. It's a tool. Mm. It was a resource. It is an instrument. And it just so has become a vehicle to express what is on the other side of all the pain in his life and all the darkness and finding that balance. It's not about the light, you know, all the time or the dark all the time. It's, it's really about honoring and accepting both. Yeah. I just want to thank you for doing that because that's what the message in this podcast is about is, is how do we come up with these difficult situations in our lives and how do we accept both?
And there we grow again, Life Alive Tribe. This is Doc Schrock, and I'm so grateful you stopped by today to reawaken your hope, purpose, and passion about this one life we have to live. It's that time for the Life Alive Tribe Sound Off. It goes like this. It's time to pick your chin up, roll your shoulders back, and say, I choose to live a life fully alive. My intention today was that you found hope, sparked your purpose, and remain passionate about the life you live. Until we meet again, friends, love, love, 